Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and I want to read to you verses 24 through 28. When the messengers of John, that is John the Baptist, had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now with these words, the Lord Jesus let it be known that he considered John the Baptist to be the greatest man who had ever lived. Now, listen, he didn't mean that he considered John to be the greatest man of his day, although that was certainly true, but rather that John was the greatest man who had ever lived in all of history up to that time. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, folks, that is a remarkable statement made by Jesus and one that must have surprised his original crowd of Jewish people who heard Jesus speak these words because by that statement, the Lord was telling them that John the Baptist was greater than all of their most revered heroes in past biblical history. Think about it. He was telling them that John was greater than Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the supreme model, biblical model of faith. He was telling them that John was greater than Moses, Israel's famous deliverer and lawgiver and the meekest man on the face of the earth. Greater than Joshua, that courageous leader who brought the Jewish people into the land of Canaan. Greater even than David, the most exalted of all of Israel's kings. And greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. Greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, even greater than Daniel, that man of unblemished integrity. So when Jesus said that amongst those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, he unmistakably meant that no individual in all the history of the human race dating back to Adam himself was as great as John the Baptist. Now that is an astounding statement to make. And by those words, Jesus not only surprised his hearers, but it must have absolutely blew their minds, astounded them, even caught them off guard. Why? Because not only did Jesus give the highest of compliments to a man, but listen, he just gave the highest compliment to a man who had just expressed doubt in his very identity. As you'll recall from our study of last week, Christ's words about John the Baptist immediately followed John's public questioning if Jesus was even the Messiah. Verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? As we discovered last Sunday, because John had proclaimed that the ministry of the Messiah would be to judge the wicked, to judge the evil of this world, John anticipated that Jesus would carry out execution of wrath right then and there. But while John was locked up in prison, his disciples brought word to him, now, Jesus wasn't doing that. He wasn't pouring out wrath on anybody. Rather, he was going about the, 
the region, the province of Galilee, doing works of compassion. He was healing the sick. He was restoring sight to the blind. He was casting out demons. And when John heard that these were the activities of Jesus, he couldn't reconcile. He couldn't reconcile in his mind the Messiah, his understanding of the Messiah pouring out wrath upon the wicked and the activities that Jesus was carrying on of kindness and compassion. And because he couldn't reconcile this in his mind, he became confused, he started doubting, he he wondered, perplexed, if he had been wrong all along about Jesus. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. You see, John had certain expectations about how the Messiah should act. And when Jesus didn't live up to those expectations, John had doubts because he couldn't reconcile his view of Messiah and what Jesus was doing. But it was John who was wrong. It was John who was wrong. Because although John's view of Messiah was accurate, since the Old Testament did teach that the Messiah would execute judgment, nevertheless, John was wrong in the sense that his perspective was far too narrow. Because he didn't take into account all that the scriptures said concerning what the Messiah would do. He only focused on one aspect of Messiah's ministry. And so Jesus appropriately answered John's doubt by pointing him back to the word of God. He had neglected the big picture of God's revelation. So Jesus pointed him back to scripture to get the full and complete picture of the Messiah's ministry. And that's why we read in verse 22, and he answered and said to them, this is telling John's disciples, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, instead of directly answering John's question by simply saying, go tell your teacher that he's wrong, I am the Messiah, he's wrong to doubt, I am indeed the Messiah, I've always been the Messiah, Jesus didn't do that. Instead, the Lord quoted from a number of verses found in the book of Isaiah, they're all messianic verses, And they're all statements about what the Messiah will do when he comes. And so Jesus is simply telling John's disciples, go back, go back to your teacher and tell him that what I'm doing is in fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. Go back to John and tell him, here's what the word of God says. Here's the big picture. In addition, the Lord tenderly exhorted John to just trust him. He said this way, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, John, don't stumble over my method of doing things. Even though you may not understand why I'm doing deeds of kindness rather than acts of judgment, John, just trust me. That's where the blessedness of joy and peace lies, John, in trusting me. My friends, the way that Jesus guided John out of his doubt is exactly the way that we need to let him guide us out of our doubts. When we're confused, when we're perplexed, and when we're even disappointed in the Lord because of some painful trial he has brought into our lives, we need to recognize that the fault never lies with God, but always with us. We need to dismiss our faulty views of God, even views that are somewhat right but out of balance and how we believe he should act by going back to 
the word of God in order to see the truth about God, about his character, about his will. And then we just rest in him. We trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing. Even when we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing or why he's doing it now, we trust him. And so having dealt with John's doubt by directing him back to scripture and encouraging him to trust the Lord, the Lord then immediately launches into this remarkable tribute concerning the greatness of John. And what makes Christ's praise about John so surprising, as I've already mentioned it, is that it comes right after John was quite negative about Jesus. And in front of a crowd of people, no less, John's disciples didn't say, Lord, could we have a word with you in private? Let's, let's go into this tent and talk. No, it's right out in front of everybody to hear this. In other words, right after the public airing of John's doubt that Jesus feels compelled to tell the people who heard about John's doubting how great John the Baptist is. So the question is, why did Jesus do this? And why did Jesus choose this moment of all moments when John had just been so negative about him? Why did he choose now to speak so highly of John? Well, the answer is simply this. It's because Jesus didn't want anyone in that crowd to get the wrong impression about John. You see, John the Baptist had come on the scene of Israel about 18 months prior to this incident that we read about here in Luke 7. So he's, he's been around for a while. And frankly, he has taken the nation of Israel by storm by prophetically announcing that their king and the Messiah had arrived. His primary message being repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning what? Meaning that in preparation for the coming of your king, you need to forsake your sin. And those who did this, he baptized them in the Jordan River as a public testimony of their repentance in anticipation of Messiah's arrival. But after preaching and proclaiming for the last 18 months that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed that Messiah, suddenly John now expresses a doubt. And he does it in plain view of all to hear by way of his disciples. And even though Jesus had wonderfully answered that doubt by pointing John back to the scriptures, it was important that the people did not lose confidence in John the Baptist as a prophet. Because if they lost confidence in the legitimacy of John's prophetic ministry, then it would eventually undermine their confidence in Jesus being the Messiah. Why? Well, because John's entire ministry was built around him being the forerunner, the herald of the Messiah. In other words, even though John wondered if Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus didn't want anyone wondering if John was a prophet. See, if John wasn't the true prophetic forerunner to Messiah, it would naturally raise doubts in the minds of a people whether Jesus was the true Messiah. And so to dispel any questions about the genuineness of John's prophetic ministry and therefore the truth about himself being Messiah, Jesus tells the people exactly what he thinks of John and what he thinks about John is that he's the greatest man who's ever lived. Now watch this. In the process of validating John's credentials as a true prophet and reestablishing the, the Baptist credibility Jesus proceeds to tell the people not only that John was the greatest of all men, 
but he actually reveals what specific character qualities made John so great. And for us, this is just great because it's a wonderful opportunity for us to gain insight into the mind and the heart of God in terms of what he considers to be the marks of true greatness. Because the way that God measures greatness, the way that Christ measures greatness, is very different from the way the world measures greatness. So how does our world measure greatness? Well, Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. He spoke about the world's perspective on greatness. We read, but Jesus called them, meaning his disciples, to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. He said this in response to his disciples who sadly had these ongoing debates over which one of them was greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus then explained to them that the world defines its great men as government rulers, officials, who lord it over others. That's what he meant. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over others. In addition, he said the world exalts as the greatest people in each generation, those who have the most power, the most influence, the most prestige, the most education, the most money. Non-Christians have always considered the great men of this world to be its movers and shakers, those who have the power and authority to tell others what to do. But that is not the way that Jesus measures greatness. In the context of Matthew 20, he spoke about being great like a, a humble little child, but here he expands it. There's more qualities of greatness than just humility. And so if you want to be great in his eyes, you need to understand what he said about John the Baptist Because in John, we see the characteristics of true greatness as defined by our Lord. So, in commending John the Baptist, Jesus identified three very specific characteristics of John's life that made him so great. Today, we're going to look at two of those character qualities. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the third one. Where we will be next week remains to be seen, but we will be somewhere next week. First of all, Jesus tells us that John's life was characterized by, number one, spiritual stability. Verse 24, the first few words say this. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Now Luke tells us that after sending John's disciples back to him, meaning back to the prison he was in, Jesus immediately turned and address the crowd of people who had heard this conversation between he and and a couple of John's followers. And what he had to say to them was about John. He turned to them. He had to speak to them about John. As I've just mentioned, he did this in order to quickly dispel any doubts that might start rising in their minds about John's ministry as a prophet. And the way that Jesus reaffirmed John's prophetic credibility was by asking the people three questions about John, with each question demanding an obvious no answer, a negative answer. First question he asked is found at the end of verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And Jesus asked them if the reason that they were drawn to John and traveled all the way from Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, south 
to the wilderness of Judea where John ministered was because they wanted to hear a man who resembled a reed shaken by the wind. Now the reeds that Jesus was referring to were these cane-like grass stalks that grew along the banks of the Jordan River, which is where John baptized. These reeds, they were light, they were very flexible so that they easily swayed back and forth when every breeze would come across them. That's important to know that the New Testament gospel narratives reveal that during the ministry of John the Baptist, he was incredibly popular with the people of Israel, that huge crowds of people traveled to the Jordan River to hear him and to be baptized by him because they considered him to be a prophet. Remember, at this point, it's been 400 years since Israel has had a prophet. There's been no prophetic voice for 400 years. God was at work in the nation, but not through a prophet. This is why those years in between the Old and New Testaments are known as the silent years. God was active, but not through a prophet. John was incredibly, incredibly popular. For example, we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. That doesn't mean every single person in Judea was going out to hear him. All kinds of people, lots of people from all walks of life from Judea, they were going out to hear him be baptized. And all the people of Jerusalem, doesn't mean every single citizen of Jerusalem, it means all kinds of people from all walks of life from the city of Jerusalem. They were going out and being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. In fact, Matthew 14.5 says that John was so popular with the people that initially when Herod, King Herod, had him arrested and wanted to put him to death, he didn't. He was afraid to kill John because he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. Likewise, even the Jewish leaders were afraid that the people might stone them to, to death if they denied John the Baptist's authenticity as a prophet. We read that in Luke chapter 20, verse 6. So in asking this question about reeds along the riverbanks, Jesus was reminding the people of what exactly initially attracted them to John. They were drawn to John to listen to him because he was a man who was firm and steady. So he's really asking, were you drawn to listen to John because he was vacillating? He was uncertain in his preaching, like the flexible reeds of grass? Was John like one of those reeds of grass, easily swaying back and forth in the breeze without any convictions of biblical truth? In other words, was John easily tossed about by the various opinions of men, never taking a stand on what he believed? Is that why you went out to hear the Baptist preach? And the answer to that question is obviously, of course not, no. John was not characterized by fickleness and uncertainty. The people traveled these great distances to hear him preach because they knew that he was a man of unbending convictions. They went to hear him because he spoke with boldness. He spoke with courageous authority. Far from being weak and decisive, wishy-washy. John the Baptist was just a rock of spiritual strength and stability. He was a man who knew what he believed and he preached what he believed. And he didn't alter, nor did he tone down his message out of intimidation from the religious leaders of his day. Notice, for example, how John 
stood so firm in the face of some Pharisees and Sadducees' request to be baptized by him, and he could have easily have caved in in order to gain their approval and their support, but he didn't. We read this in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, and this is great because in our day he would have been censored by the media, but he wasn't. He was not politically correct. He said, you brood of vipers, that means you poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like a sturdy, immovable oak rather than a shaky reed. John just stood his ground. He refused to baptize these unregenerate, wicked, unrepentant men, calling them a bunch of poisonous snakes, denouncing them for their self-righteousness, warning them about God's coming judgment upon them unless they repented. This doesn't sound like a man who resembles a weak reed. This sounds like a man of strong convictions. That's exactly why the people of Israel flocked to the Jordan wilderness to hear him because his voice was the voice of prophetic certainty and authority. Listen, the people of John's day understood him to be a man of great moral courage, one who was fixed and inflexible in his beliefs. These things that he held to were non-negotiable. He stood for his convictions regardless of who challenged him or what the consequences might be. However, the reality is that in questioning whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, John did certainly sound fickle, certainly sounded indecisive, didn't he? I mean, having these second thoughts about Christ did give the impression that he was a bit spineless and double-minded. So why then did Jesus draw the people's attention to John's spiritual stability when they had all just heard him sound so unstable and so wavering in what he believed. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you, because what you are about to hear is a very important biblical principle. Jesus highlighted John's strength of conviction, even though he had just shown, demonstrated a weakness in that area, because it is wrong to draw a conclusion about a person from one slip-up. You have to take an individual's entire life into account in order to draw a valid conclusion about them. And in the big picture of John's life, the big picture, he was characterized by spiritual stability, not doubt. That was out of character for John. Just as the Bible says that Abraham was a man of faith, even though there were isolated times that he lied and didn't trust God. And just as King David was called a man after God's own heart, even though there were isolated times when he didn't do that, so John the Baptist was a man of uncompromising boldness and unshakable convictions, even though he did experience a brief time of doubt about Jesus. Now, folks, there are two important lessons I would point out to you from Christ's appraisal of John's spiritual stability. The first one being this, that when God evaluates our lives, your life, my life, He takes into consideration our entire life and not an isolated negative incident here and there. That ought to be a tremendous comfort to you. It ought to be a great encouragement to you. 
Because like John, we all have moments of behavior that are out of character. They, they don't characterize us. And it's important to know that God looks at the big picture of our lives and he sees everything, not simply the times when we acted out of character. It's also a good reminder to us to be careful about being too quick to form negative opinions about someone else just because of one thing that they might have said or, or done. For all we know, what they said or did may have been out of character for them. And therefore, like Jesus, we need to take someone's entire life into account and evaluate them based on the, the general flow, the general direction of their life, not an isolated incident. For all we know, that isolated incident may be a deviation from the, their normal course of behavior. So, so be careful not to form judgments about others too quickly. The second lesson we learn from Christ's appraisal of John is that spiritual stability, meaning this, meaning having unbending convictions about what you believe, that's a character quality that God considers to be a mark of greatness. This is clearly what Jesus is saying. Since in the context of declaring that John was the greatest of all men, he highlights John's spiritual stability. Therefore, we have to conclude by this that if you want to be great in God's eyes, and there's nothing wrong about wanting to be great in God's eyes. It's only wrong about trying to be great in other people's eyes. If you want to be great in God's eyes, then you have to have firm and deep convictions about the truths of Scripture. That is to say, your life needs to be characterized by a faith that is certain and settled about what you believe. You should have a faith that isn't double-minded and open to modifications based on the shifting sands of public opinion. The question then becomes, well, how do we do this? How does one go about developing these firm and deep convictions? And the answer is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Now notice, in this verse, Paul speaks about being spiritually mature as opposed to being immature, like little children who have no discernment and therefore they tend to believe anything and everything an adult tells them. God wants us to grow up to be spiritually mature so that we will no longer be open to believing every new teaching that we hear. He wants us to be the kind of Christian who is so grounded in the truth of the Word of God that we won't be vulnerable to false teachers who try to beguile us with doctrinal error. In other words, the Lord wants us to be steadfast, immovable in the truth, just like John the Baptist was. So, the question is then, how do we come to this point in our lives? Well, if you look again at verse 11, you'll see Paul says, as a result, as a result, meaning that Paul is going to lead up to this. He's going to tell us about how we come to this point in our lives as a result of what I've just said. So what did he just say? Well, we need to look at the verses leading up to verse 14, and we have to see how we arrive at this spiritual maturity, the stability, because there is a process that the apostle lays out for us about how to become spiritually mature. 
Notice what Paul says just a few verses earlier, starting in verse 11. This is where the process begins. And he gave, he meaning Christ himself, he gave, meaning he gave to his church, some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now the process starts, Paul says, with Jesus giving his church, meaning the universal church, broken up into local churches, but he gave his church certain men who were gifted. He gave them gifts, and they were gifts to the church. What were they gifted? What are they gifted in? Well, they're gifted in the area of proclaiming the word of God, speaking forth God's word. See, the one thing that all of these men that he's mentioned, given to the church, the one thing they have in common is that they all have a preaching and teaching type of ministry in that they proclaim God's word. Apostles and prophets were foundational. They were the initial men given to the church before the canon of scripture was closed. These men spoke inspired truth that was eventually written down and formed what we refer to these days as the New Testament. We no longer have apostles and prophets. Their function has been served. But God still gives evangelists. Who are evangelists? Well, they're, they're men who plant new churches. We probably today would call them missionary church planters. And they do this by coming into a community, leading people to Christ, and then they ground these new believers in basic sound doctrine. And when Paul says that God has given pastors and teachers to his church, the way the, the Greek text reads, it is most likely that he has one office in mind rather than pastors and teachers, but one office of a pastor-teacher, meaning that they are teaching pastors or shepherds who teach their flock. And these men carry on the work that were begun by evangelists. Evangelists plant churches, they ground new believers in the truth, and then they move on to plant another church. Well, what happens to the church that they planted? Well, that's where pastor teachers are raised up, and they continue the teaching ministry. Only they're not just giving basic doctrine, they're taking people deep into the Word of God. They are the more permanent teachers for the church. So, why has God given them these men, these gifted men, to His church? These men gifted in the area of preaching and teaching. Well, verses 12 and 13 tell us. For, here's the reason that they're given. For, first of all, the equipping of the saints, meaning believers, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, this just continues, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And Paul is essentially saying that these men, by their teaching ministry, he says they equip believers in Christ. What does that word equip mean? Well, the thought behind the word equipping is that of restoring to its original use so that it's now useful. It was broken. It needed mending. It needed to be put back together. It needed to be equipped. And now it's useful. In this context, it means that we are to grow spiritually so that we are more and more mature, more Christ-like in our character as we are led away from sin to godly obedience so that we will be now useful to the Lord in serving Him. And how does this happen? 
How are we led from sin to obedience and into spiritual maturity so that we're no longer like little children tossed about by every wave of new teaching that we hear? It happens, Paul says, when you sit under pastor teachers who instruct you in the doctrines, the theology of the Word of God. You see, being accurately taught the Word of God by a pastor, it's not an option. It is an essential element to your spiritual growth, your maturity, your stability. It's not optional at all. This is why it's so critical to be in a right relationship with the local church where the Word of God is expounded accurately, meaning that its teaching must do more than speak about Bible stories and Bible facts and information. It must set forth the doctrines, the theology, the principles which those stories and facts are intended by God to convey. It's only when you understand God's message to his people that you grow spiritually and into maturity. Here's how one Bible teacher in explaining what true biblical preaching is, what he said. He said true preaching is doctrinal preaching. It's preaching which addresses specific truth from God to man. The preacher is an ambassador. He's a messenger authoritatively delivering the word of God to men. Such preaching presents a text, then with that text in sight throughout, there is deduction, there's argument, there's appeal, the whole making up a message which bears the authority of Scripture itself. So if you want to have biblical convictions that build spiritual stability and steadfastness in your life, then you have to hear the Word of God preached. Now let me tell you something that's very important. Spiritual growth and stability don't automatically take place just because you listen to Bible sermons week after week. There are many believers in Christ who have listened to literally thousands of sermons over the years, and yet they're still extremely immature Christians. You see, the key to spiritual growth and stability, it isn't hearing the Word of God taught, it's internalizing it. It's applying the Word to your life. It's letting the message of God grab hold of your mind and your heart so that not only are you infused with strength and biblical convictions, but you respond to his word with obedience to him. This is why James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what does that entail? I want to be a doer of the word. I don't want to be just a hearer. Well, that precious statement by Paul In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is, we translate it inspired by God, but in the Greek text, it's God breathed out. It's a couple of words Paul put together, theopneustos, God breathed out. And Paul says, not only is scripture God breathed out, meaning he is the source of it, Paul says it's profitable for us. How, Paul? for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul says that God's breathed that word is profitable for us because it changes us. Changes us by giving us sound doctrine which we build our lives upon. That's theology. It's profitable for us because it reproves us of wrong attitudes and behavior so that we'll repent and and confess our sin. It's profitable because it corrects us so that we'll know what changes we need to make in our attitudes and behavior. And it's profitable for us because it instructs us in righteousness so that we'll know how to continue to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. The precious word of God, the breathed out word of God.
Now, folks, for all of this to be happening in your life, you need to be internalizing, applying, implementing God's word, something far too few Christians actually do. But if you want to be great in God's sight, then your life has to be characterized by spiritual stability. And for that to take place, then you have to take Sunday's sermons seriously by coming prepared to learn and apply the word to your life. Don't ever minimize the importance of your local church and its pastors in your spiritual development. The way that God grows you into a spiritually stable believer is directly related to your church and the ministry of its pastors. Bypass that and you'll be eliminating one of the most important graces God has provided for you to grow. So the first characteristic of John the Baptist's life that made him great in Christ's sight was his spiritual stability. There's a second quality about John's life that made him great according to Jesus and that was he was characterized by his solitary commitment to God. He had a solitary commitment to God. The beginning of verse 25 says, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Now this is the second question posed by Jesus to the crowd. And once again, it demands an obvious negative answer. Jesus asked the crowd if the reason they went out into the wilderness traveled all of that distance was to find a man dressed in luxurious, soft, fine clothing. And the expected answer from the crowd was, well, of course not. Of course not. Now, what did John's clothing have to do with his greatness? Well, as you recall, John the Baptist wasn't the spiffiest dresser around. He dressed differently from all the other religious leaders of his day. He looked odd. He looked different. Concerning his clothing, we read this in Matthew 3, 4. Uh, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You had to have the wild honey just to drown out the flavor of those locusts. Now, there was a specific reason that John dressed like this. You see, his clothing and his ascetic lifestyle in the Judean desert They were intended to be a visual protest against the self-indulgent materialism and the materialistic religious leaders of his day. That is to say that John was a living illustration of his message of repentance. He had turned from sin personally, he was sold out to God, and unlike the religious leaders of his day who were all obsessed with accumulating wealth and prestige, John wasn't like that at all. And his clothes and his rustic lifestyle reflected that and would immediately identify him as someone who hadn't tried to gain the favors of wealthy people by telling them what they wanted to hear. And that's precisely why Jesus followed up his question about John not dressing in fine, soft clothing by stating these words at the end of verse 25. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. Now, what did this mean? Well, what Jesus meant by this is that the people who lived in the royal homes, the the palaces of kings, and wore fine clothing were those who attained their appointments there, note this, by telling the king exactly what he wanted to hear. In other words, by flattering the king, they were given key assignments 
positions of authority in the government and therefore they got to wear the finest clothes of their day. Now the reason Jesus said this was to make the point that John the Baptist wasn't like that at all. He didn't tell kings or anyone else what they wanted to hear because as a prophet, he spoke for God, he spoke from God, and therefore his solitary commitment was to God and to God alone, not people. Listen, it should have been obvious to to everyone that John wasn't one to flatter people, especially kings, and the very reason he was in prison at that time was because he had the guts, the backbone, to rebuke King Herod over his adultery. The point that Jesus was making about John is that no one owned him. He didn't kowtow to anyone. He wasn't a political candidate trying to gain votes by telling people what they wanted to hear. He had a solitary commitment to God that compelled him to speak the truth, even to a king that could and eventually did kill him. The attractions of this world, like wearing fine clothing and living in a house of luxury, that didn't influence John as to what he said. The only thing that mattered to John the Baptist was the truth of God, and he was passionate about it. So what does that tell you about how God measures greatness? It tells you that if you want to be great in God's eyes, then like John, you need to be committed to God and to his word so that you'll faithfully speak his truth regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences, regardless of where it might lead. And therefore, this necessitates that like John the Baptist, you need to make sure that what you say isn't motivated by any personal interest you might have. In other words, don't tell people what they want to hear so that they'll give you anything, be it material goods or how about respect, high esteem, popularity, they'll like you. Just speak the things that are true without trying to gain the approval of anyone but God and let the chips fall where they may. The only thing that should matter to you when you speak to someone about Christ, an unbeliever, is telling them the truth, not not how they'll react to the truth. If once you start down that road of I can't say the whole truth or they'll be mad at me, then you'll be held hostage by the opinions and reactions of others. And worse yet, you'll be unfaithful to God. Now this doesn't mean that you have to live an ascetic lifestyle like John. And it doesn't even mean that you need to be blunt like John. Some of us are just not wired like John. I tell people, you want a living illustration of John the Baptist today, and I say this as a high compliment. Look at my friend Phil Johnson. He is a modern-day John the Baptist. Phil is blunt. He says it like it is. Not all of us are wired like that. You You don't have to be blunt. You don't have to be tactless in telling people things. You be gracious and loving and kind. But it certainly means that your desire to please the Lord means that you're not dictated by what others think in what you say. Your solitary commitment is to God and to Him alone. It doesn't matter what others say. Remember what John Knox once said, God and one make up the majority. That's all that matters. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul tells us drove him in his ministry, not winning the favors of men, but pleasing God. He said these powerful words in Galatians 1.10. He said, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is a powerful statement. And it's a statement by Paul that's very meaningful to me on a personal level. Because a number of years ago, when my unsaved brother, who like myself is Jewish, visited our church, I was preaching at the time through the Psalms. And I was in Psalm 2 that day which states in verse 12, do homage, or literally it means kiss the son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. And I knew that in light of this statement, I knew that I had to explain that it's not enough just to believe in God, which is what my brother had always said, well, sufficient, I believe in God. But you have to believe in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There is no other name given amongst men whereby you must be saved. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. You have to believe in Christ. You have to trust him for salvation. And in the past, my brother is eight years older than me. And in some ways growing up, he was like a father figure to me. And growing up, his opinion was very important to me. So I knew that I might be in trouble because he had been in the past quite vocal and and upset with me for my faith in Jesus. And so I expected him, if I preached this, to be very angry at me that day, and he was staying with us. I thought, that's going to be unpleasant. So I was faced with this question, which I already knew what I was going to do, but I was faced again with the question is, was I going to tone down my message in order to appease my brother's wrath? Was I just going to say it a little more diplomatic? Or was I going to preach the truth boldly? regardless of the consequences, and just as I said, let the chips fall where they may. As I said, I already knew what I was going to do, but the Lord brought to my mind Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And I think at that time, I was sitting in my office before coming out for the service, and I think that I just slapped my knee and said, I'm going to preach the word, and I don't care what he says. Drawing strength from God's word, that's what I did. By grace, I preached the word without toning anything down. And it's very interesting, after that, when he got home, we had the best discussion about Jesus we've ever had. Uh, He didn't get mad at me. But even if he did, it's all right, because I wanted to be faithful to the Lord. That's what it means to be a bond slave of Christ. You strive to please Christ, not people, regardless of the cost. Again, Paul writes something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 and 5. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he said, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. What Paul is saying is, I didn't flatter you, you Thessalonians, when I came to you. I, I, didn't, I didn't flatter you to get money from you. I spoke only to please God and to be faithful to him. And those who do this, Jesus said, are considered great in God's eyes. So the question is, where do you stand in terms of true greatness? Are you a man pleaser or a God pleaser? To be great in God's eyes means that you cannot be bought. You won't compromise God's word in order to gain anything for yourself. So you will tell people not what they want to hear, as so many do in catering to the seeker-sensitive crowd these days, but you'll tell them what they need to hear. And what do they need to hear? The undiluted, untoned-down Word of God. 
Now the world considers its great people to be those who have power and authority over others. But God says that the truly great people are those not who have authority over others, but who are under his authority. And certainly John the Baptist was a man like that. Jesus applauded John for his rock-like stability in having biblical convictions and for his commitments to proclaim these convictions without any compromise. I mean, folks, it got the man killed. This is a man worthy of our imitation. He ought to be one of your heroes. Jesus said he was the greatest man who up to that time had ever lived. So I exhort you to form biblical convictions by receiving and applying the word of God as you are taught in church. And faithfully then speak those convictions regardless of the cost. I mean, listen, Jesus said the world is going to hate you. That shouldn't be news to you. Jesus said, if they hated me, why do you think they're going to like you? Nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. Nobody likes to be told they're dead in sins and trespasses. They're following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Nobody likes to be told you're a son, you're a daughter of wrath. Nobody likes to be told that. It doesn't matter. Our commission is from God Almighty to proclaim the truth, regardless of what people think or how they react. Now, to be great in God's sight, though, you first have to realize that in and of yourself, you're not great. You're a great sinner, but you're not great. The only one who is intrinsically great and good and perfect is Jesus Christ, because he's God who became a man, and he lived then a perfectly righteous life, which we would expect, because being God, who's perfectly righteous, he would live that way in this world. And then Jesus allowed evil men to crucify him so that in dying he would pay the penalty of all the sin of all the people who would ever come to trust him for their salvation. And if you've never done that, I want you to know the moment you place your trust in him, not only are you forgiven of all of your sins, but he then places his own righteousness, the righteousness you don't have, he places it on your account so that you are now looked upon by God as being righteous, and therefore you are fit for heaven. Sins are forgiven, imputed righteousness to your account, glory is your future. If you've never trusted Christ alone for your salvation, I pray that today is that day. And if you want to speak to one of our pastors about this, just see me after the service. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for this most significant passage of your word. Lord, what a man John the Baptist was. How we want to be like him. We may not be wired like him. He was blunt. He at times could be tactless. But Lord, we, we want to be so faithful to your word. We, we want as the way you've wired us to be, to be loving and kind and gracious in however we communicate the word of God. I know for some it's a struggle to speak to unsaved family members about Christ, close friends. We at times care too much about what they think. Help us drive these truths home into our hearts that we would have biblical convictions like John and not be moved from them and that we would communicate them in love to others and be faithful regardless of how they react. You alone.
God and one make up a majority. Lord, may we be standing with you. And I pray for anyone here who has never trusted Christ alone for their salvation. I pray that today might be that day. Turn them from sin. Turn them to Jesus. Work in their hearts. Bring about repentance and faith that they might know you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.